Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you have symptoms of COVID-19, which is a cough, uh, a new continuous cough, a fever or a loss of or change in your sense of smell or taste. The key thing is the fever, uh, the uh, new cough uh, and the loss or change of smell or taste. It's an illness that attacks the lungs, but COVID-19 can spread far more throughout the body than just there. Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show, how coronavirus hurts the human body. Doctors are still trying to understand the mechanisms behind these less common symptoms from what is essentially a respiratory virus. And why the virus can continue to do harm after a patient leaves the hospital depressed mood, or post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, or anxiety. And perhaps one in three or one in four patients may experience at least one of those mental health symptoms. Throughout human history, we have been forced to fight off predators that we can see and threats that we cannot. Today, the entire global economy has been hobbled by a microscopic virus that we've never encountered before. We have no natural immunity to it and no medical treatment to be sure we survive it. Scientists are scrambling to understand how the virus works and the effects it has on the human body. For some, it can feel like a mild cold, yet for others, it can be devastating. But why is that? Slavea Chenkova is The Economist healthcare correspondent, and she has been investigating how COVID kills. For the virus to attack a cell, the cell has to carry a protein, a certain protein on its surface, which is called the ACE2 protein. It's a protein that plays a role in the regulation of blood pressure and inflammation. And that protein is found on plenty of cells in the upper respiratory tract and the lungs. And that's why um, SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus causing COVID-19, is uh, essentially primarily a respiratory infection. Now, when people are developing a severe case of COVID-19, it seems to happen more in people who have pre-existing health conditions. Why is that the case? Very interestingly, uh, and that was actually a puzzle for doctors uh, initially when the disease came around, it hasn't been people with respiratory diseases uh, that were most at risk. Um, Data now shows that the biggest risk factors seem uh, to be hypertension, uh, high blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity. So people who have those conditions, who have heart disease, seem to be affected more than others. 
And the theory is that that has to do with those uh, ACE2 proteins on their cells because those proteins are involved in responding to the higher levels of inflammation that individuals with those conditions have. Now, almost all the patients who have been hospitalized with COVID-19 display symptoms of pneumonia. What does that mean? So when the virus gets uh, deep into the lungs, it attacks the cells which line the alveoli. Those are tiny air sacs that hang kind of like bunches of grapes off the lungs. Um, network of bronchial tubes. And it is through these air sacs that oxygen gets into the bloodstream and carbon dioxide gets out. So when the virus damages these um, alveoli, this gas exchange uh, is impaired and eventually that causes a shortness of breath. And this damage to the lungs uh, essentially is uh, pneumonia. COVID-19 causing pneumonia is well documented. In fact, it was what brought the world's attention to the very first coronavirus patients in Wuhan, China. But there are other facets to the disease not so easily understood, such as anosmia, a lack of smell that we talked about in an earlier show, and things like COVID toes, a weird discoloration of the toes and sometimes the fingers. Slavea, tell us more about this. What's happening? There are lots of hypotheses about uh, what's causing all these diverse symptoms. And obviously, these ACE2 proteins can be found on cells in many parts of the body. And that's why the thinking is that the disease can you know, cause various symptoms. But one of the hypotheses about the loss of smell is that the virus could be potentially affecting the nervous system. So the nerves uh, in the nose that are involved in kind of working with the part of the brain that regulates the sense of smell may be affected by the virus. And in some cases, the virus may get into the gut directly if people swallow it, which can cause diarrhea, or it can perhaps get there through the bloodstream via the lungs. And doctors are still trying to understand the mechanisms behind these less common symptoms from what is essentially a respiratory virus to gain a better understanding of how the virus harms and ultimately to be able to provide better treatment. Now let's try to disentangle this story. If you've got a severe case of COVID-19, how does the immune system respond? So the immune system's first immediate response to the virus is inflammation which occurs when uh, special immune cells arrive at the scene of infection to fight the viral invasion. So these immune cells are dispatched by the immune system to destroy the virus and any cells that it has already infected. Basically, the virus is stopped from replicating. At the same time, the development of antibodies against the virus gets underway, but that process takes three to four weeks. So in the meantime, if a person cannot shake off the infection, a severe inflammation of the lungs can develop. And that leads to what is known as acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS, whereby the lungs are in such bad shape that they cannot supply enough oxygen to the body. So this condition, ARDS, is uh, what causes patients 
to be rushed to intensive care units. And in most cases, they need some sort of um, breathing aids, such as uh, mechanical ventilators. And then in intensive care, more danger lies ahead. When the number of cases started to increase, certainly in London, it became apparent that a lot of these patients were developing acute kidney injury particularly those patients that were becoming severely unwell and being admitted to the intensive care unit. Claire Sharp is a consultant nephrologist and professor of renal medicine at King's College London. Across the country, about 25% of people admitted to intensive care have developed acute kidney injury requiring some form of kidney replacement therapy. But that has varied hugely from hospital to hospital. Some hospitals have seen that sort of 5% rate, but other hospitals have seen sort of 50 or 60% of their intensive care patients getting kidney problems. I asked Claire what stage of the illness patients are usually in when they experience kidney problems. So some patients, when they are first admitted to hospital, they already have acute kidney injury. And that's probably because they've been unwell at home for a while. They've had a very high temperature. They haven't been drinking or eating very much and they've become very dehydrated. The more common presentation we're seeing are when those patients may have been in hospital for a week or so, may have been unwell for sort of seven to 10 days. They then have a sudden deterioration or worsening in their symptoms admitted to the intensive care unit. We only really get those severe kidney problems in the patients that have severe pneumonia. I haven't seen very one or two cases where patients have had severe kidney problems who haven't had viral pneumonia. So they do go hand in hand as part of that severe phase of the disease. In the early stages of the pandemic, doctors noticed that the way they treated lungs could cause kidney problems. ARDS is really a situation where the lungs fill up with fluid because the blood vessels become very leaky. And so white blood cells and fluid can leak out of the blood into the air spaces within the lungs. And that's very pressure dependent. So the more volume of blood you have in the blood vessels, the more fluid can leak out into the air spaces. So it's well recognised practice that if someone has very leaky blood vessels and ARDS in their lungs, that you treat them by running them a little bit on the dry side. So not dehydrated, but certainly you avoid being fluid overloaded because that could push more water into your lungs. But it was quite quickly recognised, certainly by sort of mid-March, that these patients were already dry. They weren't fluid overloaded and perhaps drying them out even more was putting their kidneys at risk. There is one argument that if the kidneys get injured, we can support the patient with dialysis treatments, but we can't replace the lungs. But drying patients out too much quickly became apparent that that was the wrong thing to do. And I don't think that that practice persisted for very long. There is also evidence that COVID-19 directly affects the kidney. The question is, what causes this? There's probably multiple reasons why the kidneys become injured during severe COVID-19 disease. Some of it's due to dehydration, but certainly not all of it. When patients become severely ill from any reason, not necessarily just with COVID, people have septicemia, which you would have heard about, or severe illness from any cause. Often the kidneys are almost victim of the patient being severely unwell. But it can also be caused by this acute over-response of the immune system, sort of extra inflammation, which we think does occur in these later severe stages of COVID-19, a sort of exaggerated immune response by the body. And there is also evidence that the virus can attack the kidney 
directly, certainly in post-mortem studies looking at the kidney tissue after someone's unfortunately died, you can demonstrate the virus is there, it is in the kidney. And we do know that some cells in the kidney express the receptor that the virus needs to bind to in order to get into cells. About 50 to 75% of those patients on intensive care that required some form of renal replacement therapy haven't left intensive care alive. So it is a real marker of severity of the disease. Some patients are still there, they've been on intensive care for weeks and weeks, still on ventilators, still on dialysis, and we don't know whether they will get better yet or not, so obviously we hope so. There are a subset of patients that have been through that really bad period that need ventilation and dialysis who have completely recovered and gone home. So it's not all bad news, some people do come through that. So the inflammatory response can cause ARDS in the lungs, and the treatment for this can lead to kidney failure. But even after this treatment was discontinued, kidney problems still happen in severe cases. So how else can COVID-19 harm the body? Another worry are blood clots, and they're a worry for patients in intensive care that are there for any reasons, whether they have the coronavirus or not. Autopsies have turned up lots of small clots in the blood vessels uh, across the lungs. One study in Germany found that four out of the first 12 COVID-19 deaths in Hamburg were caused by a big blood clot in the lungs. So coronavirus patients in intensive care are at a higher risk of clots compared to other patients in ICUs. And that's partly because of their immobility. COVID-19 patients there are oftentimes on ventilators, which means they're essentially paralyzed, and they tend to stay on ventilators about twice as long as other ICU patients. Another reason is dehydration, which thickens the blood, so makes it more susceptible to clotting. And then severe inflammation plays a big role as well, because clotting substances in the blood tend to increase in lockstep with the chemicals that bring on inflammation. But can the virus directly cause this clotting? There is some evidence that cells which line blood vessels can be infected directly by the virus. And, you know, that's uh, evidence from some, just a couple of autopsies that have been done. So we're still at the very beginning of learning about this. But usually these are the cells that regulate the substances that prevent clots. So if those cells are being killed off by the virus, then you can imagine clotting can just run wild. And doctors are wondering whether this damage to the blood vessels could be responsible for further damage to other organs in the body. It binds with blood vessels around the body and thereby reaches important organs such as the heart, the brain, the kidneys. Colin Berry is a consultant cardiologist and professor at the University of Glasgow. So actually this virus can get through the body through the blood when it's released in the lungs and it binds to ACE2 but it can actually directly infect blood vessel cells, so-called endotheliitis. So the SARS-CoV-2 virus does have a direct implication for heart and blood vessel function because it's binding to the protein ACE2. The way the virus binds to the ACE2 protein probably 
makes the protein less able to regulate a patient's blood pressure. Usually the protein sends signals that make blood vessels constrict or dilate. And as a result, COVID-19 may be reducing the amount of oxygen which gets into tissues by narrowing and damaging blood vessels. This means that there are two mechanisms which make it difficult for patients to breathe damage to the lungs and narrowed blood vessels. Damaged blood vessels also put extra strain on the heart. With infection, there's a primary injury if the virus or bacteria infects, in this case, a cardiovascular cell, but there's the secondary effect of where there's just general illness and low blood pressure or dehydration, hypoxia and inflammation generally, that these general consequences of an illness can impair heart function also. So if someone is very unwell with COVID because of a very bad lung infection, that can have a direct effect on impairing heart function. No one knows whether the damage to the heart is caused by the virus itself or the inflammatory response that it triggers. Does a similar question of causation apply to the liver? Uh, yes. In one study, the majority of COVID-19 patients had experienced abnormal liver function. And doctors aren't sure whether it's a result of the immune system going on overdrive, this hyperinflammation that patients have, or whether it's damage caused by the virus infecting the liver. Or possibly a result of the many drugs that patients are given as an attempt to treat the disease and the side effects. It seems that the immune system isn't always helpful when it's fighting COVID-19. The immune system's response to a virus generally starts with immune cells producing signaling molecules called cytokines. Some of these tell the immune system to launch all-purpose inflammatory response against the virus. Unfortunately, the virus seems to be able to enhance inflammation. In some cases, the inflammation response goes into overdrive. And when it gets completely out of control, the body enters what is called the cytokine storm. Blood pressure can drop. Blood flow into major organs diminishes because the blood vessels may dilate or they may dilate and then spasm. It may transition between different states and then blood flow through the kidneys becomes impaired. If the, the waste of the body, urea, nitrogen, electrolytes like sodium, potassium are not being excreted, they then start to build up in the body and that in itself becomes toxic and propagates the effects of the inflammation. It can cause a rise in the heart rate, it can affect breathing, so the body's affected in different ways. Poor blood flow through the gut, there are many bacteria in the gut, so the gut can in itself become inflamed and bacteria can start to enter the body through the gut, that in itself can propagate inflammation. So there's multiple processes that become activated in the body that in themselves all need to become regulated and dampened. The cytokine storm drives the most severe outcomes for COVID-19, including 
multi-organ failure. Coming up, the aftermath of severe COVID-19. Is it a straightforward route to recovery? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Babbage. It's clear that the damage that COVID-19 can do to the body is serious. Doctors and intensive care units and hospitals around the world have worked tirelessly to treat patients who have the virus. But once a patient is discharged, it's not necessarily the end of their problems. For those diagnosed with complications like ARDS, it can mean they experience longer-term health concerns. It would be relatively common for a patient to have very weak muscles and difficulties doing their regular activities. And some people may recognize that muscle weakness for more than one or two years after their ICU stay. Dale Needham is an intensive care doctor at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Patients may also, if they had a breathing tube in place, have difficulty with swallowing and with communication in their voice and may need help from a speech-language pathologist. And then in terms of cognitive problems, thinking problems, patients commonly have problems with memory and attention and something called executive function, the ability to plan and organize complex tasks. And then in terms of mental health, patients commonly have depressed mood or post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, or anxiety. And perhaps one in three or one in four patients may experience at least one of those mental health symptoms that I just discussed. So what do you do to support a patient who comes out of an ICU after a COVID crisis? What sort of treatment could they get for things like executive function or for mental health issues? The first part of the road to recovery starts in the intensive care unit. So as soon as the patient becomes physiologically stabilized, even if they're still on life support machines like a ventilator and other life support, at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, for instance, we start the rehabilitation process right then. So we start with in-bed exercises and mobility, sometimes progressing to sitting on the edge of the bed, maybe standing on the edge of the bed, perhaps even walking, even while on a mechanical ventilator. So that helps with some of the muscle weakness problems. Also, when patients are sitting up and doing regular activity, that often also helps with their thinking as well. And then those steps continue to progress. Those specialized rehabilitation staff continue to see patients on the hospital wards. And then often patients after a prolonged stay may need to go to a rehabilitation hospital or get rehabilitation in a clinic or in their home using the expertise of PTs, OTs, speech language pathologists, and sometimes specialized physicians in rehabilitation medicine as well. Are the problems related to cognitive impairment caused by ARDS, or is it the impact of the stint in the intensive care unit, or something else? 
those are complex issues that are very hard to tease out because part and parcel of having ARDS is often these patients have bed rest, they often have deep sedation, their whole bodies are inflamed, that's what causes the some of the problems with breathing, and that inflammation also affects the brain and the other parts of the body. So it really is tough to tease out which individual part is responsible, and in reality, in any patient, all of them will play some sort of role in varying degrees. Do these ailments linger, or when they're treated, do they actually go away? It's relatively variable, but some patients may have any one of the things that I talked about, physical, cognitive, or mental health, lasting for months or for years. It's sometimes hard because you've pointed out some of these things might otherwise be overlooked. If somebody talks about having trouble with thinking and they're relatively young, when they go to see a primary care doctor, they might not recognize that there could be problems with thinking related to the ICU stay and may not do cognitive tests or have the patient seen by, for example, a neuropsychologist. Some of these things may get better over time, but it may take a long time. And some patients may never get back to the exact same state that they were in before the ICU. But the other side of the coin, to not be all negative, some patients also have what we might call post-traumatic growth. So there is a subset of patients that, despite all of these problems, have new realizations and new things that they're grateful for as well. So it can be a very complicated picture, and each patient has a unique course and really needs a whole team of people to help in their recovery, customized to their particular challenges. Slavea, you've nicely disentangled the science of how COVID-19 harms people. As scientists improve their understanding about the virus's biological pathways, what does the future look like? Well, hopefully a future with better treatment. We heard from Claire about, uh, for example, how treatment has changed to avoid some of the damage to the kidneys. Existing drugs might be able to help certain patients with some conditions. So, for example, some patients may benefit from perhaps higher doses of drugs that prevent blood clots or drugs that reduce inflammation or help their blood vessels to dilate, whatever the problem might be in their specific case. Slavia Chenkova, thank you very much. And our thanks to Claire Sharp, Colin Berry, and Dale Needham. You can read Slavea's full report on the damage caused to the body by COVID-19 by subscribing to The Economist. To get the best introductory offer wherever you are around the world, just go to economist.com slash podcast offer. That's all for this episode of Babbage. While you're with us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It does matter a lot. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. 
Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.